please open in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you stand, I'm just going to be reading three verses, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 3, to really bring us back to remembrance of what we had been studying before we took a break during the holiday season to uh, just look at some other scriptures and be encouraged and challenged to look ahead to this coming year. But now as we return back, just, uh, I'm going to begin with verse 1, which is really an ending of the argument from chapter 10. But uh, then verses 2 and 3, which really set Paul's argument as he works through a very practical issue in the Corinthian church. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Please be seated. Now, every couple of years, we have our teens come together. They meet at the church. We call it our evangelism implosion, and we send them out. We, we spend, spend the morning to, learning about evangelism, learning about world religions and about our own, the, the tenets of our own religion, and then we go out and we hit the streets uh, two by two as, as teens. We have adults that drive cars around to make sure that our teens are safe, but then they, we knock on maybe 2,000 doors during that time, uh, handing out tracts, speaking the truths of the gospel, and it's just a delightful time. And Sometimes also we have the, we have the privilege on uh, the, the Friday evening when we end that particular time, oftentimes there's a festival that the city has. And a couple of times ago, several, several years ago, the city had, was having a festival up on Broadway. And so we ended our time of evangelism implosion by taking our teens there. And about 40 teens, 45 teens probably, we have surveys that we begin with just asking about who is God and do you believe there's uh, you know, standard of right and wrong and working our way towards the gospel. And I mean, there's so many teens that, you know, and kind of that just walking our way up and down Broadway, all the booths and things, I, I think we probably talk to 90% of the people there. You'd, we'd go over to try to talk to a group of people and there's another group of teens there. And then you go to talk to someone and they already are carrying their surveys. They're like warding them off, you know, warding you off with their survey. No, we already, we already did that. And so it was a pretty sweet time to share the gospel. And right at the end of that, I had a group of teens with me and we were over talking to a, a man and his wife. They were sitting on a bench over by one of the restaurants. And and we start out, you know, do you know, uh, do you believe there's a God? Yes, I do. I'm a, I'm a Christian, he said. And I, in fact, I moved to this town because I, there was a church here that just, you know, I, I went to it through a family member and actually moved here so, because this church was encouraging him and helping him grow in Christ. And so we were talking about Christ and the nature of salvation, just, you know, that we believe in Christ and the joy that it is to know Christ and have the Bible. And so it seemed like a sweet time. And so we were, we were just wrapping up and we talked for 15 minutes and so I asked at the end, you know, so what church is, what's this amazing church that you're going to? And he goes, oh, it's first apostolic. And my heart sunk. Why? Because the apostolic church does not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Their statement in their articles of faith is that we do not believe in the orthodox Trinitarian perspective of the Godhead. They believe that God exists, uh, this one God who ha- takes on three forms, a, a modalism. It's the heresy of modalism. God puts on different hats as he walks through the different you know, areas of salvation history. But there is not, God is not three in one. He's not Trinity. And so my heart sunk and uh, the conversation immediately turned from a very sweet conversation to, I just said, if you, believe, if, you, if you believe what that church believes, you cannot be saved. They do not believe. And he held up his hand. He goes, now I used to believe that Jesus was God. I don't believe that anymore. And I was like, well, then I would urge you to turn back to that belief that you had because you cannot be saved. About that point, his wife, who had not entered into the conversation, uh, was, got very heated, as you might understand. I mean, here I am challenging someone that they are on their way to eternal hell and that the church that they are going to is not a true church. So she got a little bit angry, and I was like, I mean, I understand this is hard. And I, the teens, by the way, behind me are like, they're kind of backing up. Their eyes are getting real big. This turn from one thing to an entirely different thing. And, you know, I just, again, I was not trying to be overly forceful, but I was, I was, I was just simply sharing with him, you must, you must 
stop believing that. You must return to something that you apparently did not truly believe, but you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's the only way. He's fully God, fully man. He lived a perfect life. He died for you, taking the penalty, taking the wrath of God the Father towards God the Son. There can't be salvation if Jesus is not fully God. He goes, no, you believe that, and I believe this. And I said, no, I urge you. You will spend eternity in hell if you do not change what you believe. And at that point, it was like, we, his wife was like, we're done, and, and you need to leave. So we did, and, and yet the reality of a proper understanding of the Trinity is vital. It's not something that we necessarily think about all the time, but there is no salvation if God is not Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We, we cannot understand redemption properly scripturally if he is not. The Trinity forms the foundation of what we believe about Christianity. The God of the Bible is triune. And although this is something that 99% of you are Christian, you're here this morning, you affirm that, my question to you would be, can you prove that? Do you understand what that means? Do you know the ramifications of that? It's vital that we as a church understand those things. Now, it's fascinating. In our Shepherds Institute, our men's class, where we spend two years kind of digging deeply into theology in the church, and our women's class, LBI, we're right, right during this time, we're doing systematic theology. We're about to enter into this understanding of God as triune. But it isn't enough that, that we know that in an SI class or a, an LBI class. You as the congregation must know this. You individually need to understand the nature of the Trinity because it forms the foundation of what you believe. And you need to be able to defend this to those around you because in this area... And everywhere in the world, there are Trinitarian heresies. Heresies exist on every side. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, apostolic faith, the oneness Pentecostals, most Pentecostal movements do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, fully God and fully man. It's everywhere. And yet, oftentimes, they all are saying the same words. We believe in Jesus. That's what that man told me. I believe in Jesus. Jesus is necessary for salvation. But it was a different Jesus. You've got to understand these things. So you as a congregation need to know this. So what I'm going to do this morning is really we're going to I'm going to reorient you to our passage, what we've been walking through, the nature of headship and those things, and then we're going to spend, I don't know how many weeks, it's going to be multiple weeks, on that last phrase, God is the head of Christ, because in that, the mysteries of the Trinity begin to open up, and we need to understand what that actually means so we don't walk away into, into understanding things wrongly or not have a full appreciation of what it means that God is triune. In fact, you know, we just spent, we sent Gospel Hope out a couple of weeks ago. They had their first service last week, and 97 people attended. I mean, what a delightful thing, right, that we would send them out. But what we, what we did as a church was uh, our elders trained their elders, trained their lay elders. That is, that is, those elders who work their 50, 60 hours a week or more in their real jobs, and then they take on the weight of the church in shepherding it, as it is the lay elders of a church who are the heroes, in, as far as leadership goes, of a church. And so our lay elders trained their lay, lay elders. So Tyler and Jim... Right? We're trained by our elders uh, who work for a living as well, Andy and Paul and Jay uh, and Justin. So for a year, our lay elders spent time training those elders, pouring into them so that they would have the proper understanding of biblical doctrine as we send them out because it's essential that we know these things. And we had an ordination exam at the end where each of those elders is asked a series of questions. But essentially, the first question is define and defend the Trinity, do you understand what it is? Do you understand what it means? Can you prove from Scripture the realities of what that actually is? But you all need to be able to do that. So we're going to take our time this morning to be able to understand this because our orthodoxy, our proper understanding of God is vital for us to have orthopraxy, that is proper practice of God. In fact, in this passage, the issue is a practical one of men and women, women coming together in public worship with the women essentially revolting against the authority, the, the male-female authority that happens in marriage and in the church. 
And in the eyes of God, that was displeasing. And so Paul is laying a theological groundwork as he's going to talk about head coverings. And now you're like, get to the head coverings already. But it's going to take us a while because that practical issue is built in theology. You can't just jump into it. And Paul, although he, he, you know, he doesn't, the verses don't take all that much time, a proper understanding of them is essential that we might be able to live properly. You cannot separate out what you believe about God and what you practice about God. If you believe wrongly about Him, you will practice wrongly. As you practice wrongly, you will come to improper understandings of who God is. Both of those are essential for any solid church. It's not like, well, we're a teaching church, so we're going to teach you about the Trinity. No, we're a living church. We're a church that wants to practice the things of God to make Jesus look great, and we cannot do that if we do not understand these things. So, we're going to take our time to do so. This morning, what we will see, the beginning that we're starting this discussion, the understanding of God as triune, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, is foundational to all other Christian doctrines. It's an essential tenet of the Christian faith. The understanding of God as triune, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is foundational to all other Christian doctrines and is an essential tenet of the Christian faith. The God of the Bible is three in one. Now, by way of review, so we understand why Paul is doing this in this passage, because this is exegetically derived, and essentially what we'll be doing is we'll be doing an exegetically topical sermon, driven from the exegesis of the text out towards a topic that is essential that Paul deals with here that we need to understand. So he began, really, in verse 1, which is a culmination of the argument from chapter 10, look, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, and once again, he grounds everything in Christ person and work of Christ. But what we must understand, and what he will bring here, is that Christ is a member of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Christ the God-man, fully God and fully man, the Son taking on flesh. And he, in that sense, is, is representative of, is, is certainly a part of the Trinity. And so when we say Christ, we must understand that we are drawing in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all together. It says, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And we understand that, that what Paul is saying here is that they were orthodox in their understanding of Christ because we already know he's, they have not held fast to the things he told them to do in practice. He's saying, look, right now you still are holding on to Christ, that tradition. You believe in Christ. You believe that Christ crucified is essential for your salvation, an orthodox church, but their practice was beginning to move them away from that proper understanding. And so he's going to ground them again. Right? You're holding on to that tradition, but you're going to have to cling tightly because your practice is beginning to reflect a misunderstanding of who Christ is. And then he works his way into the nature of headship because that's the issue he's going to deal with in the church. This is an improper reflection of male-female relationship. And essentially, in the way they dressed, right? in the way they were coming to worship, expressing that externally, but it was a, it was a representation of what was going on in their hearts. And that's the way we'll work our, our way through head coverings. He says, I want you to understand then, as he ties, just talked about Christ, and you're supposed to imitate him, and Christ is the one through whom we, we understand everything about God. He represents grace and truth. He says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and we talked about that, that there is an authority relationship, Christ to men, and really that there is a hierarchy of relationship, right, where there are leaders, there are those who come underneath, there's authority and submission, and we mentioned that this happens in every level of society. So the definition of headship here, Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. This is an authority-submission relationship. That's what the word means. It's not just source or coming from. Or We talked about a variety of different options. So headship means the position or station 
from which authority is to be lovingly exercised for the good of those under the authority and to the glory of God for whom, from whom that authority originates. And we said there's hierarchy, this authority submission, this headship relationship in society, in the church, in the family, in the created order, in the spiritual order, and even in the Trinity. And we're going to have to work our way carefully. Once we come to the Trinity, once we come to this morning, we're going to have to understand that when we, we're using terms for the Trinity, that although they have a reflection of the thing, those words as we would understand them, things like Father and Son, yet they are unique because the Trinity is unique. So there is an analogy between the words we use, but we have to understand that the concepts are not exactly the same when we're talking about the triune, eternal, infinite, holy God. So we're going to have to work our way through that. The headship relationship does exist in the Trinity, but we're going to have to see how that fits, how that relates to our understanding of authority and submission as well. But we, it's, it's vital that what Paul brings in this argument as a means of saying hierarchy, that is authority and submission, is not anti-God, and it doesn't mean inferiority or superiority. So we talked about that. The implications of hierarchy, authority, and submission are that authority and submission are an indispensable element of God's eternal plan. When things take place, there are those who lead and those who follow eternally. Authority, authority does not imply superiority of ability, personhood, intellect, spirituality, or value. And really, this third statement we're, we're discussing this morning proves that. There is an authority relationship between father and son. It cannot then have something to do with inferiority, superiority, greatness of essence over another, right? Directly, it cannot. Submission does not imply inferiority of ability, personhood, intellect, spirituality, or value. So authority doesn't imply that. Submission doesn't mean that that person is less valuable or somehow uh, inferior to the one being submitted to. Hierarchy, authority and submission, does not inherently promote abuse, domination, coercion, or manipulation. That's what the world teaches. If there's any kind of authority, then that is an abuse relationship which has to be equalized. That's a heresy. That, that is absolutely untrue. There's authority everywhere, and authority is good and right. And there's authority again in submission, even when it comes to the members of the Trinity. Authority and submission are based on biblical love and wisdom, not tyranny, and domination. So God is the, or Christ is the head of every man. So Christ oversees, in his authority relationship, he oversees every authority relationship that men have. Even when they have authority in the church and when they have authority in their homes, they are always answering to Christ. Their authority is underneath his. There's a hierarchy relationship there, and Paul's reminding them, because he's going to be talking to the women about properly submitting to men, and he's going to be reminding the men that although they are called to lead and the women are called to submit, that they submit to Christ and have a unique relationship in their authority under his authority. Then he says the man is the head of a woman. We spent multiple weeks on understanding male headship. The idea that the man is to leave his family or to lead his family with Christ-like character and love his wife as Christ loved the church in the accomplishment of God's mandate for the family. God gives him the responsibility to lead in that way. And that the wife is to submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ as she helps and partners with him in the accomplishment of God's mandate for the family. The man is the head of a woman. And now we come to this third aspect of headship that is, God is the head of Christ. And the, the, the definition of the word doesn't change here. It's not used for authority and submission for Christ and men and then men and women and all of a sudden change when it comes to God and Christ. And that has been denied. Where it's like, no, this just means source now. This Christ comes from God. Well, we'll discuss the nature of that issue. That in and of itself can lead to a series of problems if you misunderstand that. 
And yet, very clearly here, as we will see, this concept is that God the Son, as the incarnate Son, submits fully to the Father, and that makes him in no way inferior or less than God. That's essential. Right? Otherwise, we have Trinitarian heresies all along the way. And that's why we're going to discuss these things, because everything we talk about in the Trinity carries with it a slippery slope inherently. And we'll work our way through the various Trinity or through the various heresies that have happened over time. One wrong word, one misunderstanding of character or essence or will gets us in immediate trouble when it comes to the Trinity. And so we want to be so careful that we don't just, you know, spin off various words and have a lack of understanding of what they mean. Even as we leave with the Trinity or in the Trinity the, the essence of a mystery that we will never solve. We're never going to fully understand the nature of the Trinity. And I'm going to give you very few illustrations of the Trinity, like eggs or water, or, because you just really can't get there. We're going to be left largely with simply, well, how does the Bible define these things? So this morning as we come to this third aspect, let's move on to our outline. We'll get down to the third point. And as I said, this is really just introduction to uh, several weeks on the nature of the Trinity overall. But first, we have an explanation. We need to, this idea of God is the head of Christ. All of these words, again, are full of meaning. So the identity of God, right? Here, I think clearly we are speaking of God the Father. God is the first person of the Trinity, and in his position as head among the members of the Trinity. So God is the head of Christ. And is is very important. As Paul is writing this letter, after the Son has come and died, been buried and risen, uh, and then ascended back to be with the Father, it is still this authority, submission, relationship is ongoing. God is the head of Christ. Right? We'll ha- we will have discussions as to how that moves into eternity past. But it certainly moves into eternity future, where God is the head of Christ. That was true as Paul was writing. It is true right now, right? And then who is Christ then? Well, Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah. He is the second person of the Trinity as he takes on human flesh. So as we understand Christ, the God-man, right, fully God and fully man, living on this earth, a perfect life and dying for us, We understand that Christ then speaks of this fully God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, right? And specifically as he has taken on flesh, we have the mystery of what we call the hypostatic union, the incarnate Christ. And yes, you need to understand those terms and those things. Most of your questions as we walk forward into fellowship groups will surround, what does it mean that God becomes man? The two natures of Christ existing perfectly within the person of Christ. And then how does that Christ relate to God? Well, we're getting our, our answers to it or getting our understanding of it as we begin here. God, the Father, is the head. That is the one who, who exercises authority over Christ, the Son, who willingly submits to the Father. So God the Father is the member of the Trinity who directs the work of God the Son in accomplishing the work of redemption. This direction does not flow out of a conflict or differentiation of wills within the Trinity, but from the willing condescension of the Son to take on flesh and accomplish the will of the Father. Not multiple wills in God. There is one, but it is expressed through the persons of the Trinity and then expressed uniquely in the Son who takes on a human nature. These things are tremendously important, but but deeply complex. We'll go only as far as Scripture goes, but we need to understand these things. Now, Paul has already addressed this concept, 1 Corinthians 3. When he's talking about unity, 
Right? Super important that we understand that a lot of this has to do with the nature of unity and the Trinity is our picture of true unity. Paul has already said whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. You belong to Christ. And then this fascinating and somewhat cryptic statement, Christ belongs to God. In what way? Well, here he makes it evident that Christ submits to God. And he makes it even more clear in 1 Corinthians 15. And when we get there, we'll have already discussed many of these things. We won't have to go back over all the nature of the Trinity. But turn to 1 Corinthians 15. That's we keep active in our Bibles this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, and he, he makes it even more clear. And here's where it becomes absolutely certain that when we're saying God is the head of Christ, we're talking about an authority-submission relationship. There's no question, none about that fact because of this particular passage and many others. But this particular one, notice how this is stated as well, Paul's talking about the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 27, he says, for he, that is God, has put all things in subjection under his, that is Christ's feet. But when he, God, says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, God, is accepted who put all things in subjection to him, Christ. You already see how complex this is getting? He, him, 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 referring to two different people. All right? In their, which is, again, why we understand their utter and complete unity. It says, when all things are subjected to him, that is Christ, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. It could not be more clear that this is the Son submitting himself to the Father. So, that doesn't solve all of our problems, but it is clear then that the headship of God over Christ reflects a headship submission relationship between the Father and the Son. And of course, Jesus himself made this evident. Some of you are going, well, why are you belaboring this? Jesus himself just, he ended this debate as to whether or not the Son is submitting to the Father when he says in John 4, 34, Jesus, remember, the God-man, you can never view Jesus as only the human Jesus, of course, because he is the God-man, perfectly fully God and fully man. So Jesus or Christ or the Son, in this sense, referring then to the God-man, says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5.30, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So this idea of submission and headship within the Trinity, Father to the Son, certainly Father to incarnate Son, and then ongoing into the future, is clear from Scripture. It is an indispensable element of God's plan. Now, why is Paul dealing with the nature of authority and submission here? Because it relates to men and women in the church underneath the authority of God. He's building a theological argument for the submission of man to woman and of man to Christ. And he ends with this, with this vital statement. If you thought that's wrong or you think you shouldn't have to do that or if you think that somehow means you're inferior, well, guess what? Christ submits to God. End of discussion. Submission doesn't mean inferiority or somehow there's an inferiority in the Godhead, which, by the way, many have interpreted that passage as saying that, that there is actually inferiority when it comes to God and Christ. Of course, that's a heresy, right? So Paul is laying it out to actually get rid of any thought of a heresy that somehow submission is inappropriate or it means that there is an inferiority or lack or lesser value in the one submitting. So he's dealing with this relationship. He's already stated that there's authority submission between men and Christ, between men and women. Now he reminds the Corinthians that the concept of headship cannot involve innate superiority or inferiority, but is a matter of God's ordering of relationships in order to accomplish his purpose of bringing glory to himself through the redemption of his people. 
two MacArthur quotes because as I told you before multiple weeks ago, MacArthur is about the only commentary who retains his mind when it comes to this passage. Everyone else redefines headship immediately. Every other commentator is not referring to authority and submission. MacArthur does and he gets that right. He says this, if Christ had not submitted to the will of God, redemption for mankind would have been impossible and we would forever be doomed and lost. If individual human beings do not submit to Christ as Savior and Lord, they're doomed and lost because they reject God's gracious provision. And if women do not submit to men, then the family and society as a whole are disrupted and destroyed. Whether on a divine or human scale, subordination and authority are indispensable elements in God's order and plan. They're not to be denied. They're not to be overlooked. They're not to be made excuses for. They are what Scripture teaches. However, again, hierarchy does not does involve authority and submission, but this is a relationship based on love, not domination or coercion or inherent superiority. Again, MacArthur. The authority and submission in each of these cases is based on love, not tyranny. The Father sent Christ out of love, not under compulsion to redeem the world. The Son submitted to the Father out of love, not compulsion. Christ loves the church so much that he died for it. He rules the church in love, not tyranny. In response, the church submits to him in love. Likewise, men in general, and husbands in particular, exercise their authority in love, not tyranny. They do not have authority because of greater worth or greater ability, but simply because of God's wise design and loving will. Women respond in loving submission as they were designed to do. And this is not a matter of relative dignity or worth, but of task and responsibility, end quote. So this is why Paul is laying out these principles because they matter in practice. They matter as we reflect a holy God. You see, God is here with us when we come together to worship. We don't call him to be here. We don't tell him he ought to come. We don't sing songs over and over and get real emotional so that he will show up. He is here watching every aspect of this service. He's either pleased or displeased by everything that goes on. It's not a mythical religion in which we come together trying to conjure up some kind of reality. God is here, and he cares what we are doing. He cares how we do it, which is why we take such care as we come together to worship. And it's true for your entire life. We don't just take care as we come here. God is with you everywhere you go because he lives inside of you and because he sees everything. He is always everywhere present. And so everything is lived in light of his principles, his authority, his character, and his nature. The church is not different. Our gathering together is under him, not under culture, not under the ideas of these elders, not under your ideas. We gather together under the ideas of God, and we are defined then by who he is in his character, and his fundamental description is Trinity. His fundamental character is three in one. So now we move away from our passage into its implications, right? This exegetical, topical discussion of the Trinity. Right? Because there's lots of questions to be answered when it says God is the head of Christ. Now, most of you, hopefully all of us, are bounded by a proper understanding of the Trinity so we don't launch off into heresies here. But over the years, people have, and increasingly now, people are doing this again. And whole areas of religion, what's called religion, has a heresy when it comes to God and Christ. Because, I mean, there's, there's things here which could be, might be implied, right? How do members of the Trinity interact? What does the submission of, of Christ to God indicate about the nature of Christ and the nature of God, the nature of the incarnate Son? Well, I'm glad you asked, because now we're going to answer those questions. 
The nature of the Trinity, then, is one of the most important aspects of Christianity. In fact, some would say, I would say, it's the foundation upon which Christianity is laid. This issue was so important that the church spent much of its first 300 years of existence battling over a proper biblical understanding of the nature of God. This battle came to a head at what we call the Council of Nicaea, which met from the end of July to end of May to July in 325. The primary purpose of this council was to deal with what we call the Arian controversy, specifically whether God the Father had created the Son at some point in time or if the Son had always existed as one in essence and nature as God. And Arians would point to this passage. See, God is the head of Christ. Christ is somehow inferior to God. There's some way. And they said it's because he's a created being. He's the highest of all beings, right? He, he interacts with God, and yet he is not fully God. And this heresy was in danger of taking over the entire known church, Eastern and Western, all of it. So they come together, they battle through this, and they come away with an orthodox biblical description of Father and Son. That's in 325, and I'm going to read it to you. Then I see in Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of God, begotten, not made, one in essence with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man. That's the statement of Christ as God, fully God. All the doors being closed as to all the heresies that were happening then. All those words are pregnant with meaning. Much of that meaning we don't even understand anymore because we're not necessarily battling the same words, same heresies. goes on to say he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. On the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. Well, the controversy wasn't over. In fact, really that launched a massive backlash and the Arians began to redouble their efforts to overtake the church and nearly did. You have men like Athanasius who stands up. He was a deacon at that conference. He then moves up in the, in, uh, the hierarchy of the church all right, gaining increasing authority, thankfully, and influence. Well, back and forth, he, was, he, was, he would come and would have some authority. As a bishop, he would then proclaim the nature of the Trinity, and they would banish him. And so five times he comes in and out of church favor. He ends in favor, and that's good for all of us because he's the one who drives then kind of the final, he, uh, his work drives the final formulation of this Trinitarian statement in 381. What you read as the Nicene Creed it came, came about in these two councils, 325 and 381. It wasn't just in the first one. So they're battling over uh, the nature of the Son, but also then the nature of the Spirit. Is the Spirit actually God? Which is related directly to the nature of the Son. Right? As the Spirit is sent by the Son, then are both divine. If one isn't divine, the other isn't either. So these are all carefully tied together. So in 381, over 50 years later, all right? The Arians are, are generally set aside, orthodoxy prevails, and they come up with a final addendum to the Nicene Creed, the first part, and it, it adds just simply, after those words, whose kingdom shall have no end, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver, the one who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. And then they have a final thought on the nature of the church. See, these are things that we're battled for. And see, some of you get a little bit uncomfortable when we talk about creeds defining theology. 
Well, creeds don't define theology. The Bible does, but creeds draw out. It's like they're like mini systematic theologies to draw out what Scripture teaches as a whole. Now, we're going to take time to look at what the Scriptures say as a whole about the Trinity. We're going to do the work that some of the work that they did in Nicaea. We're not going to try to redo 300 300 years of work and say, well, every time there's an autonomous local church, we set aside what happened in the past and we're going to make this up ourselves. We can do that. It's a chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis says. Some of those people back there, we didn't really understand the Bible. We do. So we'll come up. Well, if we come up with anything different than Nicaea, we end up unorthodox. That's the definition of a good creed. If you variate from it, then you variate from the Bible. That's what makes the creed worthwhile, and that is true. Nicaea has stood the test of time because it properly reflects the nature of God as drawn from the Bible, and we're not going to reinvent it. Right? We're not going to venerate it. It is in Scripture, and we're going to look at Scripture to back it up. So that's, that's our goal. We don't set aside statements that have been made that the early church wrestled with for hundreds of years. It is arrogant at best and extremely dangerous at worst. So we will dive into the Scriptures demonstrating the reality of that statement, the Nicene Creed. By the way, once you move past Nicaea, start to get into the 400s, 425, the Laturian councils, we do set aside all of those, generally. The stuff they start making decisions about as, as unorthodox influences through the big C Roman Catholic Church begin to enter into Christianity, we then look and say, they start to deviate from Scripture. That's how we can tell if creeds are bad. They deviate from Scripture, so we set them aside. So don't fear. Let us take one creed and say, well, as long as someone's saying a creed, we'll follow that. We follow the creed until it's not biblical. Done. It's like, well, the church said that, so it's got to be right. The Bible didn't say it. Right? So this is how we understand the creeds. And any, any statement of faith. We're doing our new members class. We're, you know, build, our statement of faith is built on the 1689 confession. Do we venerate that confession as scripture? No. Does it have excellent things to say about the reality of the scriptures? Of course. And we follow it as it represents scripture well. And of course, this has a myriad of practical ramifications because of all the cults, because all of the cults, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, you name them, have a deficient view of the Trinity, right? And, and every other religion has some deficient understanding of the nature of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Radical Pentecostalism, really most Pentecostalism, has a modalistic, heretical view of the Trinity, and you don't even know that. They sound like they're saying the same thing. They sound like they're preaching the same God, believe in Jesus, but they do not believe that, that, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one. They don't believe it. They are unorthodox, and you cannot be saved if you believe what they believe about Jesus. You cannot, and yet you listen to, oftentimes to them. You can, they, they, they populate on YouTube. You're going to have to be so careful. Right? Yet you understand what the people who are telling you things about Jesus actually believe, and they have to believe what the Bible says. So let's just work our way through a few of these things. It is very clear that the Bible teaches that God is one. Deuteronomy 4, 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And this oneness of God speaks to what we call his simplicity or his unity. You see, as Scripture declares these things, we have to try to understand what they mean. So there is a certain metaphysical understanding. That is, what is the meaning behind God saying he's one? Because the Scripture doesn't directly define that. We draw out that understanding really through the Trinity, the idea that one means there is a unique simplicity to the essence of of God. 
So simplicity is simply this. He's not made up of different parts. He's not three gods when we move to the Trinity. He's one, and his essence cannot be divided. Shedd, who wrote an excellent dogmatic theology, says this. The simplicity of God denotes that his being is uncompounded, incomplex, and indivisible, a most pure spirit without parts. Now, the contrast is this idea of simplicity does not belong to angels and men. They are complex, being composed of soul and body, two substances, not one. Every other substance in the universe apart from God is complex. God alone is simple, or simply you could say unified. Our idea for simple now is, is, is unintelligent or, or, you know, basic. That's not the meaning of simple as found here. It is without parts. So another way to say it is that God is a unity. His, his essence is a unity, and therefore his character is a unity, right? So this simplicity extends into his character as well, which means this. Everything God is, he is completely. He is not part love and part justice. He is entirely love and entirely just. This works also for seemingly opposite characteristics. They aren't opposite. They're reflections of God. God is entirely good and entirely wrath. Everything God does is an act of the whole person of God, not part of him. This is one of the attributes of God known as his absolute attributes. That is who he is in relationship to himself. And there's a series of them. He is infinite. He is ase. He, that is, he, he needs nothing. He is totally self-contained. And he is simple or unified. Wayne Grudem says this. We must remember that God's whole being includes all of his attributes. He's entirely loving, entirely merciful, entirely just, and so forth. Every attribute of God that we find in Scripture is true of all of God's being. And we therefore can say that every attribute of God also qualifies every other attribute. He is one. Scripture teaches this. But immediately we have a wrestle, Right? Because number two, the Bible teaches that God, this one God, exists how? In three persons. So we're like, wait a minute, I thought you said he was one. Now you're saying he's three. Yes and no. Right? Why? So let's work this out. Again, Shed says the divine essence can subsist wholly and indivisibly in more persons than one. John Owen, in one essence, there can be but one person when the essence is finite and limited. But when the essence is unlimited, there exists the potential for three in one. Well, we know that Scripture says that God exists in three persons because we know of God the Father, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. All right, and, and the whole Testament, God, God the Father, God the Father, over and over. But 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for Him. And yet, what's the next sentence? And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. So there's God the Father, and then there's, uh, there's another God? No, there is another person of the Trinity. That's God the Son, reflected in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, as the one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Two different names given, but the, but the attributes of God both described. Hebrews 1, 8. But of the Son, he says, quoting the Old Testament, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Psalm 2, 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So there's God the Father, God the Son, and there's God the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 48, 16. Come near to me. This is the Son speaking. Listen to me, for from the first I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God, God the Father, has sent me, the Son, and his Spirit. Right? So you have, and again, 
multiple places in the Old Testament and then clearly in the New, where it talks about we are the temple of God because the Spirit of God dwells in us. So the Bible teaches that God is one. The Bible teaches that God exists in three persons. The Bible teaches then that each of the three persons is God. You have a definition there. God is three persons in one essence, that one simple divine essence. The divine essence subsists wholly and indivisibly, simultaneously and eternally in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that the Father is God. Do not work, John 6, 27, for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And 1 Corinthians 8, 6, which we read, there's one God, God the Father. Yet there's also God the Son, John 1, 1. In the meaning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You have personhood with God. You have equality in essence was God. The same was in the beginning, in eternality, the same was in the beginning with God. All things came into being. And the attributes of God, all things came into being through Him, and through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So we have God the Father, God the Son, and then the Holy Spirit is God. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? How do you become a temple of God the Father? When God the Son dwells in you. Acts 5, Peter said to Ananias, why has the Spirit filled your heart to lie? Or excuse me, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back some of the price of the land? And then verse 4, you have not lied to men, but to God. we'll, We'll discuss these proofs more later on, but it is clear that the Bible describes the Father as God, the Son as God, and the Holy Spirit as God. And then to hit this one final way, the Bible teaches then that these three persons are one God. So the Bible teaches that God is one. The Bible teaches that God then exists in three persons. The Bible teaches that all three persons are God. And the Bible teaches that these three persons are one God. We're trying to slam the door on every thought to get around the nature of the Trinity. Definition here, there is but one essence in the Godhead. This one essence wholly and equally pervades, simply the word I used, wholly and equally pervades each of the three persons in the Godhead without division or multiplication. The Father and the Son are one. The Bible teaches this. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Boom, mic drop, end sentence. All right, B, the Father and the Spirit are one. 1 Corinthians three sixteen that I read. Don't you know that the, you are a temple of God? The Spirit of God dwells in you. They are one. The Spirit and the Son are one. Romans 8, 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Right? They have a differentiation in person, but they are one in essence. And then the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one. So we come now to our communion time, understanding that the nature of the Trinity is essential for our understanding of salvation. This is not a minor issue. So as the men uh, come and as the team comes, I want to remind you that as the work of Christ or the work of salvation is Trinitarian. That is, God the Father plans it from eternity past. God the Son executes that plan by coming to earth and dying on the cross. But I ask you, is it God taking off his hat, he comes off the throne, and he comes down and gets on the cross? If that is true, then to whom is Christ propitiating our sin? The wrath of the Father is then poured out upon the Son 
who is equally and fully God. And if the Son is not God, then he cannot take the eternal wrath of the Father, and he cannot make an eternal payment for our sin. You cannot have a modal God. He's Father sometimes, and Son sometimes, and Spirit sometimes. You cannot have a Son who is less than fully divine at every point in his existence. Eternity past, the incarnation, and eternity future. And you cannot have a God in which the Holy Spirit is not also divine. Otherwise, you are not sealed until the day of redemption. You can lose your salvation. You could in a moment be lost. But what is true? Because the Holy Spirit is God. When the Spirit says, or when, when the Bible says, that with the Spirit you are sealed until the day of redemption, it is the power of God himself applying this truth to your hearts in the person of the Holy Spirit who then guards and protects you forever. This is a Trinitarian work. It is based upon the principles of Scripture that define the Trinity, and you cannot hold properly to the exercise of communion unless you affirm at least the nature of the Trinity. You cannot deny the Trinity and still partake properly. So this is an understanding that is essential for us as believers. So as believers, here's the thing that I would encourage you with. That you would, as you partake of this, if you are a Christian, that you would, again, rejoice and fear God for what he's done for you. This Trinitarian work performed on your behalf. This God who is not the same as any other God. No human being comes up with a Trinity. That's why all cults don't believe it. It is only what God reveals through his word that you would bend the knee in your heart again in awe, thankfulness to the God, the triune God who sends his son and the son who comes, accomplishes this work and the spirit who applies it. But also that there would be a fear of God to, to confess your sin. That this being done on your behalf, the father sacrificing his son for you to make provision for your forgiveness, that you would, you would repent of any sin that you are aware of coming into this time. Jealousy, bitterness, anger, lustfulness. They don't come through this time because you recognize the nature of what has been done and the weightiness of a holy God who did this on your behalf. And so you examine yourself not simply because you're commanded, but because of the greatness of your God who died for you. If you're an unbeliever, then what you should recognize is that apart from this Trinitarian work, that, the, that you will spend eternity in hell and apart from properly understanding who the Father and the Son and the Spirit are and affirming those truths, you cannot be saved. And that you would move from darkness to light out of the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of Christ by confessing your sin and recognizing the work of Christ done for you on the cross that we celebrate. And that you'd be able to partake with us for the first time as a true believer. And that you could rejoice in that. That would be our heart. But if you choose not to bend the knee, then do not partake because that is an affront to a holy God. So as we celebrate this morning, let's stand and sing and prepare our hearts.